0: Hello, and welcome to PSA Today number 19. I'm here with my co-host, Kalia Young. Um, PSA stands for Privacy, Anonymity, and Surveillance, all very important, more than ever. It is Wednesday, September 23rd, and we are really here, really happy to um, to have with us today, uh, Tim Buma, uh, who is the senior policy analyst for identity management at the Treasury Board Secretary of the Government of Canada? Welcome, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Can I pronounce it right? Is it BOOMA or BAUMA? It,
1: it, it depends. Like uh, on the Western side, they say BOOMA. In the middle of the country, they say uh, uh, BAUMA. And then in Quebec, they say BOOMA. So I've just given up.
0: You can pronounce it however you want. Good, good to know. Um, <laughs> So what brings you here and how do you know Kalia? Well, Kalia emailed me and
1: said, hey, uh, do you want to be on the podcast? And I said, sure. I guess, uh, Kalia, we've known each other for a number of years now. I think we met in Washington maybe five, ten years ago. I kind of lost track. But uh, we've been swimming in the same circles of identity and privacy and self-sovereign identity and um uh, you, you were on my podcast uh, probably about four or five, six months ago, and uh, like I consider Kalia a dear friend of mine in this space, and we just keep in touch, and uh, yeah, so this was just no big deal to come on this uh, podcast, so thanks for having me. Thanks,
2: thanks for joining us, yeah. <laughs> so how did you get into um, looking at issues around digital identity um,
1: first? Well, Oh, this goes way back. I think I really started to get into identity or identity management at the time back in, I think it was 2004, 2005. And I was at the time working for a management consulting firm doing work for the federal government. And, um, Worked on one project to develop like a service delivery model around identity, which is it was more around uh, PKI. And then uh, in two thousand five, uh, we did a workshop bringing a whole bunch of departments together on uh, figuring out figuring out what identity management would be for the government of Canada. And that was a really successful consultation. We got like all the big departments and agencies, like uh, service and security, and that and you know, did the workshop thing and did the report thing, and that was very successful. And uh, they really liked the work that I was doing, so I was brought in on what was called uh, the interchange program, where I actually, even though I was still with my home organization, my uh, consulting organization, they brought me in as if I was uh, one of their own. And um, so for four years, I was on an interchange program and worked on developing uh, a lot of the uh, uh, treasury board uh, policy, if you will, like we do have like uh, uh, treasury board policies and directives, kind of similar to what the OMB, the Office of the Management Budget does for, for the US government. And so did that. And uh, then my uh, interchange was up and I went back to the private sector and I said, uh, I'm going to see if I can go in full time in the public uh, public service because I felt like I had a, m- a mission to fulfill and I was brought in full time. Uh, I guess that was in 2010 when I, when I became like a proper public servant. And so I've been here since working on identity and digital identity. Lots of related files as well, and so I kind of joined. I, I got into the space uh, like mid-career, if you will, and uh, joined the public service mid-career. So it's, it's kind of neat to be a public servant, um, but having a lot of private sector experience. Like I, I work for, like uh, I don't want to go through my whole resume, but work for like uh, a, a search a search company at the time. Uh, that did something equivalent to what Google did pre Google for text text retrieval for the big online providers. Worked for a, a company that provided that type of software. And the golden age of the online providers like CompuServe, uh, American Online. Uh, what was it called? Uh, the company is called Fulcrum. Fulcrum Technologies was a search
0: engine company, and they they have vague memories of like twenty five years ago.
1: Yeah, their 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 claim to fame was that they created a. Uh, a search engine that basically was sql compliant so you could bolt it in with the traditional drivers or sql drivers odbc and it was pretty easy to integrate into your applications and it was an, an industrial strength um you know back then it was called a text retrieval engine and it uh, was pretty much uh, the back end for like westlaw was another one uh umi um all the big um online providers, uh, uh, at that time. And, uh, you know, creative destruction, it ran into, you know, problems as the market changed and they, they made some interesting strategic moves, try to, try to go into the enterprise market and ended up being like, instead of a profit center, they ended up being a cost center. So that totally changed the marketing and, you know, and Google came along with an entirely different uh, search algorithm and that basically, uh, you know, it just, you know, things evolve. So that, 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 and then after that, I was in the management consulting for about 10 years. And then uh, just given that I live in Ottawa, I ended up uh, doing a lot of work with the, with the feds. And so here I am. I don't know if that's boring or not, but that's no. kind of my, my no, background. No, it's great. <laughs>
2: um, so, um. This, we on this podcast, we haven't really talked that much about the emerging decentralized identity and self sovereign technologies. So, um, how do you describe these technologies in your own, like, to normal people?
1: Yeah. Um, what are some of the sound bites that I use? Uh, and again, we're still tr- struggling for like concise, hard hitting messaging for like people that aren't uh uh, absorbed in the space every day uh i just remember uh it was a couple years ago i was at an aviation security workshop and it kind of hit me and like when everybody kept talking about oh better information sharing more intelligent sharing and i went like crap like the debate hasn't changed in the last 15 years it's all about information sharing in the back end and and really not about the individual. And I realized, oh, this is about, not about better information sharing. This is about enabling individuals to present their own digital proofs in the way that they want, whether you're crossing the border or applying for a job. And um, so I've been trying to describe it that way. Like we do have the terms like self-sovereign identity, um, verifiable credentials, um, you know, portable credentials, digital credentials, um the the way i've been describing it it's just it's just you know we're, we're giving agency or power back to the individuals to pre- present their stuff in a way that we've done for millennia As i've been saying like the last 30 40 years have been a pretty much an aberration in how we do things because we had the big it kind of come in really big time late 20th century and um that's been uh, you know, the, the dot-com revolution was pretty much predicated on all the enterprise software. ERP stuff was predicated on, on a lot of the big IT vendors are predicated on all this information sharing and centralized databases. And, you know, we we didn't do it that way for like the majority of society. And we're I think we're realizing now that we have to go back to the ways that we do things do things like have stuff in our wallets and present it the way that we want and not have everything tracked about us. And so we're, we're going back to the models that we've had in society for, for a long time. And I would say, you know, now we're getting technologies that uh, actually support that. And like cryptography, asymmetric cryptography, it's way, you know, it's relatively young, like the, you know, the, the, uh, Diffie-Hellman paper was published in like '76, so you basically only have like 40 years of history um, with uh, asymmetric cryptography or that new direction in cryptography, and uh, and we're only now trying to figure out how to apply this in uh in a uh, institutional way. I don't know if that's the way to describe it, but uh, you know, there's lots of ways of uh, describing it. Like a, a lot of folks just want to hear about the surface features of the technology but then there's also what I would say the institutional implications. Um,
2: Oh can you go into some of those?
1: Uh, I'd say the the institutional implications are is that every program is conceptualized as one big honkin administrative system that you have to build and spec out and operate until like the bolts come off you know the cobalt type systems and that and and you have you have those uh, systems that uh are you know are are centralized or built on vertical brittle architectures and yeah they do the job um but they do have end of life and you know the question is do you put something in with the same philosophy or do you actually explore different philosophies maybe there's different different ways of doing it and i think um, you know a decentralization in ssi uh, i would say over the past three four years has helped change the direction of the thinking of how we might uh, build these new systems it's probably gonna take a generation to figure it out but that that that's okay We're, we have to be in it for the long run and um, i think what's uh, really important right now is uh, really try to get to the nub of these these new concepts uh, and uh, try to figure out how to wire it into like a new institutional framework you know frankly nobody knows how this is going to play out but i think that's a responsibility for governments in some respect is to try to understand this at a very deep level not so much so that we have to build it ourselves but we can actually uh, then uh, say, well, you know, if we do it this way, it might have a long-term I- implication. So if we put out RFPs or create policies, we may want to nudge it this way or encourage encourage direction this way or set up gar- guardrails in this direction and um, then kind of see how the, how, the, how the market responds to that. So, you know, I'm just kind of uh, talking about it generally, but uh, that that's the... The, the perspective I take is I, I look at it from a, a long-term perspective, trying to understand uh, the historical aspect, not only old history, but recent history, and then really uh, challenge assumptions on what solutions or approaches that, um, that can actually change the game, so to speak. And um, like SSI, if you boil it down to, and I, I don't know how much you want to focus on SSI, you know, it's built upon like a lot of the traditional uh, uh, cryptographic pr- primitives that have been around. And SSI
0: stands for?
1: A self-sovereign identity. So my, my apologies, that's, that's another bad thing that we do when we're in this space, we just assume everybody knows the acronyms that we're using. So um, self-sovereign identity is the concept of, you know, literally giving a power back to, to, to the user and uh, using a new model of um, how you share your information. Some might describe it as anti-surveillance or, or whatnot. Um, you know, that
0: could be a way of describing it. But um, just and What understand- about privacy and anonymity? So you hit the one bingo word with the surveillance. Now we hit the other two.
1: Yeah, yeah. So privacy and anonymity, that's always been like a huge priority for us um, the work that we do, like uh, we we in Canada, we have a very strong uh, privacy commissioner, uh, federal privacy commissioner. That's what's called an agent of Parliament to uh, report directly to Parliament. That holds us. They're they're a watchdog um, mm-hmm. uh, federally. They they um, they hold uh, departments and agencies to account. And the office that I'm in, the chief information officer, we have a, a privacy division division as well that's responsible for our policies. So privacy is a big deal. We are focused on protecting the privacy of individuals and recognizing that there's balance. Um, you know. and You're saying at the federal
0: level, right? Yeah, Unlike the- in the United States.
1: Yeah, the federal. So we have the federal Privacy Commissioner, but the the provinces and jurisdictions, uh, provinces and territories, they do have their own Privacy Commissioners as well. So you have like a, you know, multiplicity of um, Privacy uh, Commissioners and legislation that varies. And I'm not I'm not so sure how it works in the states. I presume the states have their own privacy legislation. And uh, yeah, they know, we, have
2: legislation, but there's very few, if any, that no have Privacy oh, okay. Commissioners. And and the it ends up at the federal level. F- federal privacy laws are enforced under the Federal Trade Commission, sort of.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I guess it's different here in Canada. And there is
0: no federal privacy czar. There is no High Office of Privacy. There's no such thing. Oh, okay. Well, we we have that here in Canada. So, um, <laughs> lucky you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and 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 quite frankly. I, you know, I think it's great. It just, it just keeps us on, uh, uh, keeps us uh, privacy uh, at the forefront all the time. And quite, quite. Uh, like I, I know a number of folks from the Privacy Commissioner's Office. We we keep them abreast of what we're what we're doing and uh, the technologies. And you know, um, yeah, we have a great great relationship uh, with them.
0: And then, does it get politicized at all in Canada? Uh,
1: yeah, when you get up to those levels, um, I, I, th- I think it's different. And again, I, I'm speak I'm not speaking on behalf of the government. I think me- I better qualify that I'm, sp- I'm on this podcast as me and I'm not speaking on behalf of treasury board or the government of Canada, or on behalf of any of the, uh, working groups that I'm leading or participating in. So, um, Duly noted. yeah. So having that aside,
0: uh,
1: it's not. In the U.S., it's very much uh, drawn a- across uh, party lines, bipartisan. It's it's not so much that uh, not so much that here in Canada. Um, what what's different is that, as I said, um, at the federal level the privacy commissioner is an agent of parliament. And so they report directly to parliament. Um, They don't report to within the government, within the public service. So they do an annual report. And uh, and we also have the auditor general. We have the information uh, commissioner. I think the ethics commissioner as well. They're basically separate offices that report to the parliamentarians. And um, so where you do get tensions, uh, so to speak, is not across bipartisan lines, but really just holding uh, departments and agencies to account. And kind of where that um, manifests itself is, as I said, these uh, reports that they uh, produce, typically on an annual basis. And 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 similarly with the officer of the Auditor General, if they take an interest in. Um, a particular file, then uh, they will open up a, a proper. Uh, it's not an investigation; it's an audit, and we're often on the receiving end of those audits and have to facilitate the, uh, the re- the responses and write the write the recommendations. And you know, it's you know, it's checks and balances. It's it's, it's a good um, it's it's a good it's a good process. Like uh, um, you know, I, I'm always with the view that you think you're doing the right thing. When you're looking at it at your content in your context only, um, what it does it just helps bring in other contexts and other perspectives. And um, uh, like Canadians, like you know myself included, maybe I'm speaking more from my perspective. We're very, um, very uh, uh, guarded about our privacy, and it's um, it's it, it, it's it's a high value. I, I, re- I recall. Uh, having someone say, complain about the Canadian market, a certain vendor that did a uh, certain type of services predicated on like, you know, data exhaust for lack of a better term. And and they were saying, you know, it's such a challenge in Canada because we can only, there's 40% of the population that we can't get coverage on. Yeah, and it's like, uh, it's because uh, we're not, we're not uh, collecting data every which way. Um and uh well it may be you might be able to do that in the US that's not the case in um in Canada and while it might make a challenge for your your market it's like well you know that's kind of the reality reality in Canada N- not saying it's better or worse or morally superior or not it's just that um uh we just are very uh are very sensitive about our privacy here in Canada and that's just a just it's just baked 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 in our DNA and that's
0: just the way it is yeah. were you involved with them um, some of the, the sidewalk stuff in Toronto uh,
1: peripherally um, I, I know someone well that was involved on that file and again I am just commenting commenting from Tim's
0: perspective only uh, so what's Tim's perspective on sort of the moral <laughs> of that story
1: um, you have a lot of, and what uh,
0: happened? You know, for for the for listeners, kind of what was what was the context and what was every what were all the different parties and what were they trying to do and what was the resolution?
1: Yeah, so S- Sidewalk Labs is a, a division or subsidiary of Google, and. Uh, there's, there's the uh, tor- Toronto waterfront. It's this uh, I think it's about 12 acres in um, uh, the, like on, on Lake Ontario. That used to be a, in, an industrial area. They've been trying to develop it for years. And it kind of sits in this netherworld of provincial and federal jurisdiction. And then um, uh, Google came along with sidewalks saying, hey, we'll transform this into like, uh, you know, a smart city or city of the future or whatnot. and you know, we'll put lots of toys on lamp posts to surveil everything, and put all this data, data collection. And you know, you know, a few years back, like you know, everybody was pretty optimistic, you know, saying you know, it sounds like a good idea. And then uh, you know, there was a uh, uh, like a uh, I guess a, a committee, a public sector committee that was put together. I don't know if it was just the city of Toronto or, or the province. And and again, uh, I don't have the full details, but uh, at, at the at the end of the day. Um, you know, you you have a large organization that's basically trying to impose their will on a uh, a project that has a lot of uh, what I would say public interest, and then people started to question. Well, wait a minute, if I if I if I live in that area, uh, what what laws am I uh, subject to? And then what's this thing about a data trust? If you collect all this information, like uh, who's going to monitor that data trust and be accountable for it? And, you know, the, you, you know, and then you have these, um, you know, these proposals and these documents that are hundreds and hundreds of pages long, if not thousands of pages that are really difficult to absorb and adjust and, and, and comment on. And uh, it's really, uh um, and again, just from my perspective, it's it's pretty easy to overwhelm, like a like a volunteer committee or a committee that this is their part time job to have oversight on this. And then finally, at the end of the day, everybody said e- enough is enough. We have to actually have to go back to the uh, uh, drawing board on this. And basically, the agreement uh, basically got struck. And I think they're back to um, back to uh, uh, ground ground zero on that. So really, that's. I, you know, I've just been observing it more from the sidelines on it. But um, you know, what, what I saw was uh, really almost like an existential threat. You know, n- no, no malintent, but um, you know, uh, the the possibility of overwhelming like a, a public body that is trying to do things in the interests of its citizens and its residents. And um, and um, finally, there were some really dedicated people that. Brought those issues out in the light and just kept uh, that just kept um, making it visible and making people aware. And basically, they were successful in the end. So it was a big, uh, I would say, and again from my perspective, it was a big sigh of relief that this didn't
0: go down. Yeah, it it featured uh, prominently in uh, Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism tome.
1: Yeah, I have to psych myself up to read that book because I think I'm just going to have lots of bad reactions if I read it. So, um, uh, I mean, in a good way, I'm just that I'll agree with it. But, um, uh, like, I totally know what the space is all about. and uh, You can
0: just watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix for sort of the two-hour version of the book.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm debating that too. If I need some uh, some prep exercises before I actually watch that, because uh, th- these things like do rile me up, and I've been reading about the social dilemma and um, or just you read- should not, not
0: don't watch it. Watch it on an empty stomach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we could
2: uh- have a we could have a book club, Tim. I'm sure I've read like one chapter of it. Cause someone is like, Oh, that chapter has, and I went and read it, but um, you know, I think there's lots of material to read in this industry and it's, it's more fun to read with friends than read it yeah. by
1: yourself. Yeah. I, I think I do need those
0: coping mechanisms. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in the book, like it, it it's Google, you know, it, it's, it's a certain blend. It's a certain kind of, Late capitalism, digital colonialism—that Google sort of—and and they, it, you know, they sent. Um, I think it was Dan Doktoroff, who was one of Bloomberg's kind of key henchmen in New York under Bloomberg, to kind of run this digital city on behalf of Google and make all of Toronto happy with all the digital freedoms that Google would provide, while they're recording every little every every little gesture into their database. At least that's how it comes off in the book, and I'm curious. Kind of, I mean, it's great that it seemed like Toronto and Canada kind of stepped up and pushed back on that. I'm kind of curious, like what 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 came out of it? Is there any good that's come out of it now that sort of public private partnership that that kind of speaks to to your point about self sovereign identity about moving it forward into production.
1: Um. I I would say that the the, the general good that's come out of it is that it's, it's raised the alarm bells that this is the game that's being played. I actually had a call with someone earlier today from the city of Toronto and some other stuff. um, And uh, you know, starting to realize that these are the issues at stake. It's not about better feeds and speeds and efficiency and cost and anything like that. Those things are important, but there's some more existential issues at play that everybody needs to be aware of. And I I think, especially what's happened over the last uh, couple of years, I think uh, people are a lot more vigilant, especially in the public sector, that these are things that we need to be aware of and uh, cognizant of. Uh, It's just not uh, about um, just accepting a vendor's value proposition at face value and saying this is going to be better for us. There's a a, a lot more at stake, a lot of a lot more ext- externalities that have to be taken into account. And and quite quite frankly, uh, I don't think anybody really has all the answers yet because um, you know I, I would say that we're we're moving into a fundamentally new type of environment where uh, the the digital realm is as important or more important than the analog realm. And we actually have to try to reconceptualize um, what the public good is with those boundaries being uh, blurred. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Like uh, what, what I'm finding, like this the self-sovereign identity uh, uh, stuff has really put me on a different trajectory. And I, I find I'm, I'm actually starting to think about things in terms of um, how do things flow, logically flow from uh, the digital rights that we need as individuals. And the question is, what exactly are those digital rights? What are they? Uh, how, how do you, is it just an extension to the traditional hum, human rights that we know? Or is it, you know, digital dignity? I, I, I don't know. And I, that's where I'm reaching out to try to figure out uh, uh what what the discussion should be and I, I'm finding that there's an interesting space between what I would say traditional policy making um and uh the digital the technologists and the, the uh, legal folks and there seems to be this space in between that's just trying to figure this out at a more visceral level to figure out exactly, what we need to do, what the real what the real levers are, um, as opposed to just talking about it like, um, you know, you know, existentially or blue sky. And I think that's where, like, the work that I'm doing, what what Kali is doing, is like saying, okay, so what what does this actually really, really, really mean practically? And so, some of the some of the um, lines that I'm starting to draw in my mind is that if we're going to be serious about this. We actually have to start thinking about what I call like hard lines enforced by cryptography that basically can't be crossed; they f- f- feasibly can't be um, uh, crossed. And, and then we actually have to start thinking about well, if if we're talking about this whole open and free society thing, then um, there's costs associated with that. So what 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 costs are we willing to uh, accept in relation to that? And um, you know, having those discussions as it relates to uh, the the digital realm. I'm just, that's where my thought processes are. And Kalia, you might have more to chip in on that, but that's certainly where my evolution of thinking has been going, especially over the last few months.
2: Yeah, I think um, there's several really interesting discussions happening around practical implementations of digital rights. Um, my friend and colleague, Jean, at the um, IO Foundation's been sketching out a potential universal declaration of digital rights. And Jeff Aristi, um, with the Internet Bar Association has been outlining sort of the right to a digital identity and what that might mean. So there's really, you're right, this is there is a fruitful discussion at this intersection that isn't just like blue skies, human rights lawyers writing nice prose, yeah, yeah. which is like, those are great. And then how does it work? Because we got to we gotta meet the digital technology where it is. And there's certain things it does do well and other things it doesn't do. And if you don't understand cryptography <clears throat> and what it can and can't do, it's really hard to write practical realizations of those rights down.
1: Yeah, and also doing the the, the fine art of being precisely vague. And um, (laughs) you want to be able to, especially when you get into like uh, policy and regulation and then ultimately legislation, you want to be able to have the right concepts in there that stand the test of time. And, you know, I've kind of lived through that with uh, the PKI, uh, the, the wrong way to do it is to put like cryptographic algorithms in a regulation that's uh, basically un- under a, a, an act of parliament. And like 20 years hence, we're still trying to unwind that regulation. And, uh, you know, was, uh, I'm not criticizing, but, you know, when that was passed in the early 2000s, I think it was, um you know, everybody thought PKI was going to solve the world, and uh, like we had a PKI policy that I described it as it was more complicated than our constitution, and it was hard, difficult to impl- <laughs> implement. <laughs> and then we ended up repealing a lot of that policy, like uh, back in two thousand nine, because it was, it was just too uh, prescriptive, and it just didn't well, it didn't work. Like as I said, PKI was great so long as humans weren't involved, um, and. Um, uh, you know, there's good intentions in that, but then we end up spending like a better part of a decade or more, more than a decade uh, unwinding what I would say optimistically prescriptive type of requirements. So I'm super, super duper sensitive to that. So, you know, coming back to, um, you know, self-sovereign identity and and, you know, these newer concepts, you know, the... Yeah, I actually have to understand this really deeply and say, well, what, what's, what's, what's at play at a more fundamental, deeper and societal level? And maybe there's a better way, a timeless way of expressing that. And maybe that could be something that could eventually be expressed in, in legislation. We're, we're starting to have those discussions. And again, you know, we've had discussions with our Department of Justice on this. And one of the comments that I made is that uh um you know let, let's not work with uh, concepts that are it concepts that are 30 years old uh combined with other concepts that are thousands of years old let's, let's try to um let's try to look at some of these newer concepts that we've been developing or terms and definitions that are reframing our thinking and maybe there's something there that could uh be in legislation or regulation so um, like I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, trying to understand these concepts very, very deeply and, uh, then to say, okay, well, um, what, what's, what's the material thing that we need to focus on here? And, mm-hmm. you know, S- SSI, it's cool, but when you peel away the label and all the, um, all of the, uh, uh I guess rhetoric around it, you know, it's not, not that much different than what. What PKI is public key, private key signing, etc. The only the, the only thing that I see is different is that you have this new, you know, distributed ledger construct that diffuses governance. You can kind of do away with uh, the false choice of a centralized authority or nothing at all. You can have something in the middle, and uh, it basically helps to solve, you know, what's always been the remaining problem of PKI is the 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 authenticity of the public keys. How do you know that that key is legit? And um, who's going to tell you that that key is that public key is legit? And it really really boils down to to that. So I think, you know, trying to understand these problems very very deeply, then that gives me or gives our division the advice, uh, the ability to provide some like, you know, distilled down pointed advice to uh, the, the 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 people above our pay grade.
2: Hmm. one of the things that you guys have done is actually like sort of poke the market a little bit by putting out some RFPs could you share a little bit about what those have been and why you did them
1: yeah I I, I guess again drawing from experience that we did this is back in 2008 um, when we wanted to update or upgrade our authentication solutions at the time um we put out, we did a consultation and we put out an RFP to say, look, uh, industry, we only care about the authentication piece, like the identity piece we're going to keep in house. And uh, back at that time, it was fairly novel. People thought like authentication, identity were one and the same thing, like username and password jammed together, proving who you are, just the fact that you know the username. We we, we, bro- we broke that out architecturally and uh, went to market with an RFP. Uh, to And the, the way that we structured the RFP, we said, okay, we're interested in the technology, but we're, we're actually more interested in uh, the relationships that you can build. And uh, back then we said, well, we're only interested in vendors that can actually bring a consortium together of, Uh, I think at the time was 11 million credentials that we know that are in active circulation. Back at that time, the only real players uh, in the game were uh, the banks. And again, keep in mind the context from 2008. And then we got feedback, and we realized that we also had a service, uh, a a huge constituency outside of the country. So we actually had to uh, 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 do an RFP for a contract uh, for the government of Canada only, not with the banks. So we we learned a lot from that. So you know, we, we learned. Um, that, you know, if you have some uh, uh, like clear positions as uh, as government on what you need as a, as a customer and uh, or as a client, um, that that can drive the market. And you know, we, you know, and again, it might sound very old fashioned, but that's where we introduce the four levels of assurance. Uh, separation of identity and credential. We do all policy instruments around around that. We've evolved uh, our policy instruments, again, speaking federally, to this notion of a trusted digital identity. And and then we're starting to think about, um, you know, making it very clear that we want to have like a plurality of operators, not just a single system or a single operator, uh, that we uh, have strong relationships with our other jurisdictions, so the provinces and territories, and just kind of let the market uh, shape itself around that. Uh, I guess the latest thing we just announced um, just a couple uh, actually last week is our the results of our uh, called Innovative Solutions Challenge, which um, we're going to be testing. Uh, verifiable credentials and I can give you the link you can put it in the show notes but uh, we have six vendors uh, that are that won that challenge we I think we had 40 that responded and we basically said okay you're gonna work together on this you know it's one thing that you're providing something to government but we're actually going to say you, you, you're you're all playing in the room together and your stuff has to interoperate between each other before you come to us and I uh-huh. keep it we're gonna keep everything out as much in the open as possible. Like the, the launch, the, uh, the uh, I recorded the kickoff, it's up on YouTube, it's all up there. Oh, cool. Full, full two hours, it's uh, posted on the GitHub site. And we made it very clear with the vendors that if you have secret sauce, that's okay. We, you know, we have uh, clauses in the contract to protect, uh, protect their competitive aspect. And if they have anything proprietary, that's fine, but it's gotta be exposed to standardized interfaces and um so we're really using that to catalyze the market and as you know Clea, like uh in the ssi space there's like it's pretty pretty uh active and uh, i'm trying to stay on top of it but i don't have a handle on you know there's trust over ip there's decentralized identity foundation there's the hyperligeraries there's all the traditional stuff and that and honestly, uh, I I don't know what how, how that's going to shake out. And we're, yeah. we're we're using this challenge to uh, uh, to help uh, uh, shake it out. And there's a lot of what I would say um, uh, magical stuff in there as well. That sounds really cool, like zero knowledge proofs, for example, and and all this cool stuff. And 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 honestly, I don't know the feasibility of it uh, when you're going to country scale. You know, right that's, that's the kind of stuff we, we gotta got gotta gotta figure out yeah yeah and, and so I don't know if I answered the question but um, you
2: did no I okay. mean it's, <laughs> it's exciting that you're you know you're engaging with the market but in these you know innovative ways just what you described of of, of selecting six vendors and saying are they all like they're producing wallets or are they
1: no, it's really um, – that's the thing that we're hammer, hammering out right now. It's not so much around the wallets. It's more around the interoperability of the, the credentials themselves. So um, uh, not as concerned about the, the wallets. I'm more concerned about what gets issued from vendor A, can be verified by by vendor B right. via whatever digital infrastructure. And so that's the stuff we're sorting out. How uh, – uh, you know, the, uh, if, we, if we do this right um, – uh, the wallet actually becomes immaterial because you're just presenting a proof. So just doing a lot of hard work on conceptualizing this. And that that's the other thing too, is um, just learning about this market in a way or these new technologies say, okay, this is what I got to care about. This is the stuff that the market can figure out. Um, if we're, if we're going to be a model customer as government, um, these are the things that we need to be concerned with. And, and the way I've been describing it is that we need to have confidence of issuing into a network and verifying from a network. So, our 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 main concern is understanding the characteristics of that network, what it should be, how it would interoperate within uh, uh, within the country as well as with other other networks. And then the wallet stuff is actually super important, but it's really focusing on that capability. It's kind of like you know, the, the, another analogy that I give is I. In the days of the landline, you pick up a phone and you get a dial tone. You don't know what the what the vendor is. You just get a dial tone. You dial, and kind of kind of we want to have the same experience here that there's a, a dial tone that just allows for the verification, right. and nobody nobody needs to care about who the operators are, or where the central office is, or. Uh, you only have to know that it's a long-distance number or local, and now you don't even really care about that. So that that's kind of um, uh, wh- wh-
0: wh- what, I'm lo- what I'm looking at with, it, with the challenge. Has the, um, the virus or the response to it changed your thinking about SSI over the last six months?
1: Uh, yeah, it, it's way bigger than SSI. Um, it's about how do you do things uh, uh, digitally, and and, uh, I, and maybe and to take out the word uh, digitally, how how do you do things safely? Uh, contact lists, uh, remote remotely attending from afar. Um, if you're going to open up the economy. Um, you have the transportation sector is a big player there and uh, you have to start thinking about uh, if you got to put in some verification capabilities that not might not be from a browser, from a mobile phone, it might be a hard coded firmware kind of device that opens up a door and stuff like that. So we're thinking, thinking along those lines. So it's, it's basically, um, uh, uh, really, uh, focused, um, uh, focused, uh, a lot of effort in the space. And I'm kind of hoping, um, like literally we have the, uh, our, our, new government, the speech from the throne is happening as we speak. I'm hoping that there's going to be some, uh, uh, mention of a transition to like this new, new digital world that we're in. So SSI is just a small, uh, uh, part of it. Um, as, as I said, it's, what, what, what I'm focusing on is just making sure we understand the concepts and the tech, more yeah. importantly, the concepts when we're called to execute at scale. Right. We don't F up. That's right. basically it. And
2: so one of the things you did to help explain all those concepts is you worked really hard on the pan Canadian trust framework, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't just me. It was, um, all the jurisdictions. We had a pretty intense, um, review process, uh, Again, so, saying,
2: so, for the for our audience, what the heck is what is it, and how what what did you define in it?
1: Okay, I, sh- I should it all, <laughs> all, all it is. So we have what I've been focusing on is with the public sector. We call it the public sector profile, of the Pancake Trust framework. There's some other stuff going on. All it is, it's a set of agreed on concepts and um, models that we've developed with uh, the public sector community. It's just a fancy policy framework. That's all it is. It basically, if you wanna know what a trusted digital identity is, you can look up, um, can look up the term trusted digital identity. We've got it in there. We've defined some really, uh, I, I guess went, went through lots of iterations. We we looked at all the digital identity programs and all the technologies and and, and kind of went, what the heck are they actually doing there? Uh, how do we model that? And we came up with a model. Took a number of iterations. Um, we defined what are called atomic processes, like identity verification, identity establishment. I think we have about thirty odd, um, thirty odd um, uh, atomic processes. And now we have the capability that if we need to do something with the European Union or Australia or New Zealand, or even a vendor, we can say, okay, um, we need to know with what you're proposing, how does it map to these processes? We gonna have to decompose what you do. And then, um, and then on the other side, when we're assessing a program, we've done that with um, federally with the uh, province of BC and Alberta. We can say, okay, we know that you have these vendors and you have these departments and agencies involved and in, in doing part of your functions in, um, in uh, uh, providing digital identity, but we need to map it back to this normative model to really understand what you're doing. And then once we have that map to the normative model, we have what are called a set of conformance criteria, a set of criteria that say, well, you know, if you're doing... So say, for example, identity resolution sounds kind of um, boring, but it's like, how do you uniquely identify an individual within your population? How do you do it? Like, do you assign an identifier? Do you do you use something else? Um, how do you resolve it to one and only one individual? So there's a whole bunch of like meta questions, if you will, that you have to hammer through that enable us, uh, I guess, speaking federally to say we have confidence in your program. And... Um, We've gone it. it, it, So we've used the trust framework to first of all work with the jurisdictions, uh, the provinces and territories, to say you know a duck is a duck, okay, Uh, and this is how we're calling it. Maybe someone else wants to call it something else, but this is how we're going to define it. And then we use that to then do like a super detailed assessment of a program that's providing digital identity. And it's actually not so much about technology. It's about uh, technology is a key enabler. Uh, the most important part is um, uh, the, the the business process integrity. So when you have a real person, how do you make sure it's a real person? Um, are they born in your province? If so, uh, where do you get the evidence from? Are they born from outside of your province? Uh, where does the evidence come from? When they present themselves, how do you make sure it's that same person? And then when you when you issue a credential or a trusted digital identity or whatever call it, or wherever they log in, how do you make sure it's that same person? And uh, when you're administering the systems, how do you make sure that they're secure? Like all the all the you know, questions that need to be asked um, uh, to make sure that a program is of integrity. Like it's a pretty intense process. It takes uh, from start to finish, like I guess we did BC, took us six months to go through the, the assessment process. And um, uh, it's not a, it's not about, oh, we got some new tech, uh, it's gonna solve our problem for us. No, no, it's about, uh, it's more about, um, do we actually trust your program overall? So in a nutshell, the Pan-Canadian Trust framework, it just, we have a, a, what's called a normative core, you know stuff that um, you know we've defined, formally defined these definitions, trusted processes. We've got you know what we call qualifiers, like levels of assurance or whatnot. I forget, uh, I forget uh, the, the, all the key components there. And then and then we have a bunch of conformance criteria that um, that uh, uh, enable us to do the assessment. The other part that we added in um, just over the last version is helping us to map to this new digital ecosystem. So we really started to formalize this notion of issuers, verifiers and holders and adjusted all the definitions uh, to that model. And then we have a bunch of extra stuff, some guidance and um, just a practice material that we've, we've thrown in the appendices. And then we're, we have like the initial hustings of an assessment process. Which we've been implementing at the federal level, but there's no reason anybody uh, anybody else can use it. So, at the end of the day, it's just a it's 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 just a, a policy framework with some definitions and some nice diagrams. Maybe I'm underselling it, but that that that's all it is. But um, it took a lot of uh, as I call it, refining by fire. It took a lot of work to um, really uh, take all the feedback and. Um, discussions with uh, everybody and landing on something that everybody was comfortable with.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> cool. Well, I think it's really excellent work. We'll put a link to it in our show notes and cool. thank you for doing it. Um, do you have any more questions, Seth?
0: No, um, it's fascinating. Thank you so much, Tim. I mean, it's like a deep dive into your brain, but so it's really cool. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really passionate about it. Like I think, like K- Kalia, we have a mission that we want to do this right, and um, really committed to making sure that change is done in in in, in a good way. And um, yeah, no, I'm really uh, really uh, grateful that you uh, uh, interviewed me, and and um, really 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 pleased. Cool.
0: Okay, so we're wrapping up for PSA today number 19. It's Wednesday, September 23rd. And we thank you, Tim Buma. And we will put uh, some links up and, and share this podcast uh, soon. And um, again, thanks for your time. Nice to see you and, and hear you, Kalia. Yes. And we'll be back next week.
2: We'll be back next week.
0: Okay, bye.